Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we're joined by Liev Schreiber. Hi, Liev. Hello. Currently starring as Macbeth at uh, the Delacorte Theatre, part of the Public Theatre here in New York. Liev, you've done five different shows that I count with uh, the public, besides Macbeth that you're doing currently, Henry V, Othello, Cymbeline, and Hamlet. What is it about the public and Shakespeare that attracts you? Um, I guess for me, it, mostly it has been that the public, in at least in New York, for me is Shakespeare. And uh, so it's been uh, pretty much the, the primary outlet for me to do classical theater. And I think it was also, I have to say, that it was George Wolfe who sort of you know brought me in and took me under his wing um, back in 1993 and, and, and first uh, hired me to do these to do some of these plays. Well, he was the artistic director there. Well, yeah, right. But, but why Shakespeare? I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's something that has just been in my life since I was a kid. I, I think, you know, my father was an actor. Um, uh, my mother uh, loved Shakespeare. Um, I don't know. I was just one of those kids who uh, took to it. I just, I just liked it. I, I was the kid who would always raise his hand in the English class and uh, uh, you know, volunteer to read the Shakespeare scenes. Did you do any Shakespeare in school then? Uh, in high school, I did. Okay. My first play was Midsummer Night's Dream. I played uh, Nick Bottom. And how about professionally? What was your first? Professionally, my first was the Camden Shakespeare Company's production of Romeo and Juliet. I played Tybalt. I was in Camden, Maine. Beautiful place. Well, with the current production of Macbeth, I was very struck in an interview that you gave where you said you were trying to find the goodness in the character. And we think of Macbeth as really a, a villain in many cases and certainly someone who's undone by his own ambition. How do you find goodness in, in this man who's killing people to become king? I guess the goodness for me, I mean, goodness is such a general word, but I, I guess... What I meant by that, or, or <clears throat> now that I have the chance to revise my statement, what I mean by that is, is I think, the humanity. And so what is the vulnerability of the character? And um, whatever whatever he does, can I begin to understand it as a human being? Can I begin to identify with the action? Um, yeah. Because in your performance, you you certainly create him as very human because you are running an enormous range of emotion. I was struck by the physicality and at times how how much you're reduced to tears in mm. playing Macbeth. It's it's quite extraordinary. Is is that is that a performance that you've ever you've seen people approach it that way or is this totally something that, that you found yourself? I, I think it might have something to do with the fact that I am just a big crybaby. <laughs> No, um, it. Uh, he seems like an incredibly distraught character to me, and he seems to hover in between incredible ferocity and confidence, and um, uh, the the antithesis, which is a kind of mewling, puking baby. Um, and I think that that is a very human quality, particularly in situations of great stress and 
and in states of dementia, which is what I think the guy is suffering from. At least anxiety disorder, if absolutely, if not, uh, absolutely, if not, if not mild ADD. And the reason I ask that is, you previously were in a production of Macbeth at mm. the Public, where you played Banquo, and mm. it was Alec Baldwin and Angela Bassett. Mm-hmm. Having had the opportunity to watch that production up close and be part of that production up close, did that inform the work that you're doing now? Oh, you know, I, I think absolutely. It, um, for me, just it's amazing how much these plays stick in your head. The funny thing about any of the Shakespeare's I've done is like I, I have such admiration for these actors and teachers who can pull Shakespearean quotes out of the air. I can't. I've been in so many Shakespeare plays. I can't remember a line. I know every once in a while, I, I mean, the to be or not to be soliloquy is about as good as it gets. I just can't remember a line of anything I've done. But it's funny when you begin to work on the play proper, when you sit down with actors and you begin to do text analysis and you begin to analyze the play and you start to shape it and feel it, it's amazing how securely that information of those past productions is lodged in your brain subconsciously. And it it really does help you. You know intuitively what the words mean and you don't know why you know. I guess I, I sometimes I think of it as uh, actors' brains, or well, maybe not actors' brains, but maybe my brain. They're like you know, computers that don't have enough memory, and then they sort of store things, and they have to junk things to store more. So I, um, I think that you know, I, I had to, I have, you have to get rid of Hamlet and Iago and Henry V to play Macbeth, but it doesn't mean that they don't doesn't mean that they stop informing you in another way which is which is what's compelling to me and i think which is good because that's uh, that's more intuitive and it's always the intuitive that is more useful to you on stage than the intellectual about a, about a year ago this month uh, you made a statement that you really wanted to do macbeth and you were going to go down and see oscar eustace who's currently the artistic director of the public so how did this all come about now from a year ago when you were first thinking of doing macbeth i'm not sure if oscar heard me say that or if this was just a play that he wanted to do as part of his season. Uh-huh. I don't know which came first. Uh-huh. Um, all I know is that he he did, uh, after the Tonys, I uh, was asked that question at a press conference, and I said that I, I wanted to, uh, I was very interested in Macbeth. And and um, uh, I, I guess about maybe five or six months ago, he came to me and, and, and said that he was considering doing a production of Macbeth, and um, he wanted to... Uh, Talk to me about Moises Kaufman. The director? Yes. So then how did it proceed from there? Was, was Kaufman already on board at that point? Yes. We, we, we met and talked and, and got along really well. And um, I've been very impressed with his work. And it's his first Shakespeare. And and um, I thought uh, we should do it. Had you not worked with him before? No. And Moises's process, certainly in the work that he's created himself, is collaborative with a company so working with an existing text is is somewhat different at least for the the best known work that that the audience is familiar with how collaborative was the process with him uh on macbeth uh very (laughs) something that i'm not really used to um i I am used to uh, with other kinds of material with improv and um and um you know, shows that are developing in a kind of more naturalistic stream. But um, I've always thought of Shakespeare as uh, text-based, and I've always liked to work from a, a, a platform of text-based. 
Uh, and so it was really interesting to work with somebody who who has a much more kind of collaborative approach, much more kind of visual and intuitive approach to to the to the play than than I do. And for our listeners who've not been to the Delacorte in Central Park here in New York, it's it's a very large stage, a lot of space to fill up on that stage, and a beautiful backdrop of trees in, mm-hmm. in the park. Uh, so you're sitting outside on hopefully a nice night, as it was the night that I saw it, I think, when Howard saw it, too. Um, it's a very physical show. In other words, it's not just text. A lot of action, a lot of physical uh, motion in the show. No, you, you've got to be... Um You've got to be prepared <laughs> for a, for the physicality of these shows, particularly in the Delacorte. Um, I usually start training about four or five weeks before before we go up. Training in what sense? Physical? Yeah, yeah. cardio and uh, everything. I mean, it's it's grueling to do those shows six nights a week. I mean, <clears throat> particularly with the leads, you you generally end up speaking a god awful amount of text and then a big sword fight at the end. So mm-hmm. <laughs> you got to be. How does that space in the park? You've done a couple of the shows, the Shakespeare's at the public in the park. You were at Cymbeline was in the park. The Tempest was in the park. Does that affect the performance? Does that affect you as an actor working in that kind of environment? Absolutely. It's, it is, as far as I'm concerned, the greatest theater in the world. I love it. It is also, it is also a beast and really, really difficult to get right. But but you have the huge advantage of it is just the most exquisite place to sit on a summer night and people are very happy to be there and it's an incredible tradition and it's an incredible gift from new york to itself and i and that goodwill that comes with that space and free shakespeare goes a long way having said that it's a very difficult space to fill because you think it's a sort of traditional amphitheater and feels kind of proscenium, but it's not. It's actually much more of a three-quarter thrust, and the two downstage voms are are kind of really essential to creating a a kind of a circular venting of uh, of movement through the space. If that makes any sense, that it, you've really got to have movement and flow through the space. If it becomes static or proscenium. It just it gets rigid. The other issue is that the microphones is that a lot of actors think that the microphones are going to actually um, amplify their voices, which they do to a degree. But you can't think of it as as naturalism projected through a microphone. It still has to be uh, it's a microphone has to be used. Uh, it, it really just considered a tool to to help. Well, you mentioned the audiences, and people certainly enjoy a nice night in the park. But there's also the situation where you have people of all economic strata who can mm-hmm. get in there because it is free. Anybody who lines up can get in. Is there a different quality to the the audiences themselves in the park because they're not people simply who've had to pony up seventy five, eighty five, a hundred dollars to see the work? Yeah, and I mean, I I, I don't I don't I, I don't really know, but I like to think that that's probably what the Globe was like to some degree. You know, there's something. Uh, what I love about the Delacorte audience is they're a little bit rowdy. You know, <laughs> I remember doing shows of Henry V where it would start to rain, and you know, we were tired. We'd been working all week, and we wanted to get out, um, and we were sort of happy that the rain had come because we were going to get a night off. But they would start stomping their feet. 
that they wanted the show to go on. Mm-hmm. And I remember twice, one of the reasons we can't go on is because of the microphones and, and the, the, the microphones get damaged by the rain. Um, and I, at least twice the summer that we did Henry V, the cast kind of collectively decided to take off the microphones and go out and do it in the rain because mm-hmm. the audiences were just stomping so loud and refused to go home. And that mm-hmm. was... That's really fun to be a part of. I mean, that kind of, you suddenly feel like, oh, you're at a ballpark now. You, you don't it's not get that just on Broadway. Theater. Exactly. And you also, I, I, I gather, do it, you know, full thrust. In other words, you don't hold back. Last night when I, when I saw the show, one of the microphones on one of the other actors cut out for about a second or two. And you heard his voice loud and strong, and the mic popped back on. Oh, good. So you could tell that he was really projecting as though there were no mics at all. He was really going for it. And it's, it's what you have to do in that space. Yeah. I mean, it's still, even though the microphones are there, you still need to, to carry back. There's 1,800 seats. You still need to carry back to those last rows. And last night when I got there, the box office had a sold-out sign. Even though it's free, they yeah. had the sold-out sign. Yeah. So you attract very large audiences. It fills up every night. It's a New York tradition. And I, yeah. I, I mean, it really, is, uh, it really is an honor to be a part of it. I love it. So we've been talking about Macbeth. You've played <clears throat> other great roles in Shakespeare. Certainly, we have to ask you about the experience of playing Hamlet, which is half the time we interview people, they come in and say they'd really have liked or want, still want a chance to play Hamlet. You've gotten to do it. Was that was that the, the apogee of, of all Shakespeare for you? You know, I think Freud really wrecked Hamlet. <laughs> it's, a, it's such a... Um, the, 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 I think the problem with Hamlet, with the problem with playing Hamlet, is that everyone is Hamlet. And so you really, it's very difficult to get away with being Hamlet. The audience knows you're not Hamlet because they're Hamlet. The director knows you're not Hamlet because he's Hamlet. The other actors know that you're not Hamlet because they're Hamlet. And unless, until some director comes along with with an idea that I think deals with that problem, it 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 it, it becomes a, a a recitation of of of. Um, of other people's psychology. I don't know how to explain it, but I, I loved playing it. And, it, you know, it's such a lucid play, and it's uh, it's it's such a... The, the sort of... Um, the, 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 the intellectual gymnastics of it are really, really fun. Um, I had Andre Serban, a wonderful, wonderful Romanian director who had also directed Cymbeline. Um, and... Um, it was it was it was an incredible experience. It is. It's one of those things. It's a you know they say a change your life baby. It's a it's a change your life part. It's a big part. But to pursue your Freudian comment, you had a particularly interesting twist in your Hamlet, in that your mother was mm. played by Diane Venora, mm-hmm. who had herself played Hamlet yeah. for Joseph Papp's New York Shakespeare Festival. You, you see what I'm saying? Everybody's Hamlet. <laughs> it's literally yeah. she yeah. had been. Did you ever have conversations with her about her Hamlet? We did. We did. We talked about it a lot. It's Every, odd to go to mom for yeah, advice right. on being Hamlet, but no, no. So many people, um, so many people have some intimate experience with that part in that play. Um, it was exciting. Well, you talk about everybody is Hamlet, and certainly Hamlet, Macbeth, Henry V, the other shows you've done are probably among the most produced plays in the world over the decades, over the centuries, and so many different actors have played the roles. What is that like for you? Is that intimidating? Is that a challenge? How do you look at, at now playing these roles? It's part of what I love about Shakespeare is that um, you are part of a tradition um, that 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 is that is quite old, and I think it's it's the, it's the only writer whose 
whose text is so dynamic and so um, poetic and so, in in some respects, um, far-reaching, um, broad in range, that that it, it it leaves itself infinitely open to interpretation, um, and in in that sense, it's you really if you're just going. <clears throat> if you're just really approaching it from a text perspective, you're going to end up on a different path. You know, it's, it, it's funny. I, it's where it's it's how I got my tolerance for remakes in the movie business. It's like, you know, by by doing Shakespeare plays, you kind of know. Well, right. If if the story stands retelling and the writing is good enough, um, you're never going to end up in the same path. It's interesting in theater and in film as well. It all comes down to the book, doesn't it? Yeah, basically. Have, the finest actors in the world, that the book's not good. That's right. Yeah. But it's interesting that you raise that because, of course, you've been into very high-profile remakes. Mm-hmm. And unlike theater where you can hear about what someone may have done with a role or if you yourself got a chance to see it, certainly in The Omen, you can go back and look at Gregory Peck. In mm-hmm. Manchurian Candidate, you can go back and look at Lawrence Harvey and see what they've done. Mm-hmm. So is that even more intimidating when that work still lives or – or is it is it equally daunting just with living with the reputation, if not the reality of prior performance? Um, yeah, the reputation is daunting, but you have to put that out of your head. There's nothing I can do about the fact that I'm that he was Gregory Peck and I'm Liev Schreiber. But there's nothing I can do about that. So you know, the sooner you get that out of your mind, the better. He's a, he's you know a, a really well loved movie star. Say. And I think. Um, uh, Lawrence Harvey was was a brilliant, brilliant actor who was wonderful in the Manchurian Candidate. He wasn't as big a star as Gregory Peck, so I think the comparisons are proportionate. When when you have a well loved Hollywood icon like Gregory Peck, then you're in for it. But you you have to put that out of your head. It it, none, it doesn't really matter. Any preference for live theater versus film versus television? Um. I, I, uh, you know, obviously, I, for me, I think it's it's most satisfying uh, live theater because you have that immediate gratification of a, of a relationship with an audience, and that you know you're you're starting the arc of something and completing the arc of something within a defined period of time. Um, film is a completely different animal, really, really interesting. I think that they inform each other. Um, the things that I've learned from other actors working in the theater or from directors or working on plays or learn timings from audiences have been effective to me in film work um, uh, and vice versa. So, um, it, it, you know, you would think that the, that it might be more one-sided, but it isn't. They really both inform each other. And, of course, film and television work is a, a lot more lucrative today. <laughs> well, as we talk about film, and we're primarily a theater show, but it, it bears asking, you wrote and directed the film Everything is Illuminated. Do you have the desire to do that in theater as well? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, you know, do I have the talent? That's another question. I would like to do that, yes. I, 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 um, I, want, I wanted to... To study playwriting when I was a student, and and I've tried to write plays. I wrote mostly monologue shows, but I'm I'm starting to get around to fiddling with things, um, just because it's so much fun on the computer. And and um, yeah, I would love to. Well, one of your college professors I read uh, told you you'd be better off acting than writing. What, what what was that all about? He 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 pushed you toward acting. Yeah, that was sort of a cruel joke I played on myself. But yeah, I had a um, 
I had a uh, theater professor who uh, was basically my writing mentor, and I wanted to apply to Yale as a playwright. Uh, I couldn't decide if I wanted to apply to Yale as a playwright or as an actor, and um, he really encouraged me to apply as an apply as an actor because it would be easier to get in, or because I think that was <laughs> I think that, that was the logic. Yeah, <laughs> not that you would make a better living as an actor or anything like that. Uh, no, I, I think I, I you know I think he also probably saw that I really loved acting. He could see it more than I could, and maybe I was maybe back then in college I was a little more ashamed of it, or I thought it, I thought there was something silly about it, and uh, you know it took me a while to to really have respect for it. Did you have a, a burning desire to tell stories, though, as as a writer? Yeah, I, did, I, yeah, I definitely had a burning desire to, to you know, um, deal with an audience. <laughs> <laughs> what did you did you have any any stories in mind that you were going to do, or do you now have any that you want to tell? Well, growing up in the Lower East Side in New York, I saw a lot of um, really amazing and interesting and horrible and hilarious stuff, and. When my fa- my father fa- put me in private high, I, I'd gone to public school most of my life, and then my my father uh, had come back into my life and and um, had uh, given me some money to go to a private college. The 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 differences, the social differences that I was experienced were were very very dramatic, and um, exploiting that was really fun in private college, uh, and 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 doing these characters from the Lower East Side of New York. In you know uh, uh, Amherst, Massachusetts, was was really fun. You spoke earlier, as any actor who works in Shakespeare tends to do, about the greatness of the writing and the language. You've also worked in theater on plays by two other writers known for their very distinctive language. I want to ask you about both of those. First, Glengarry Glenn Ross, and working in the language of David Mamet, which is so very different from uh, from Shakespeare and and not not naturalistic mm-hmm. at all. How did you find yourself sinking into the rhythms of of mammoth speak? Yeah, I, I kind of lucked out, and I don't know that I want to give the secret away that I that I that I. It's not such a big feat to be able to step from Shakespeare to mammoth. I think because oh, you got to tell us. Well, uh, <clears throat> I don't think they're truly that dissimilar. And I, you know, uh, I, would in, I would include Pinter in that group as that well. That was, of course, the next question. Um, uh, there is a mind to there is there is a there is a there is a musicality in the language, and there is a rhythm to the language that is part and parcel of who the characters are. That is the that is this one of the central uh, techniques for me, at least, of approaching Shakespeare. That the language is the character, and every idea that you have in one way or another will stem from the language. Um, you can invent tons of backstory and 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 other stuff to, to 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 gild the character, but the truth is that the core of the character and that and and how they function in the play comes directly from the language, and that it's just that the technique of of uh, using the cues of the language to develop character and behavior. And um, I think Shakespeare, Pinter, and Mamet are all sort of very, very specific with those cues. 
Well, the, the language in Glengarry Glen Ross was certainly strong, if nothing else. Yeah. And you were at the same time as appearing eight times a week in Glengarry Glen Ross, you were editing the film that you, you directed, the one we talked about a moment ago. Yeah. Um, I read somewhere that it was a great relief to be able to get out on stage and, and vent your, your frustrations in the editing room out on stage. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, no, there are great plosives in, the, in Mammoth's swear words. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I, this was a really hard period for me. I mean, you know, doing, doing post on the film and being in the play at the same time. But it was very, very uh, satisfying and strangely relaxing for me after having made my first film and sort of struggling with my new relationship to to that um, world, um, it was very very comforting to kind of go and be in the theater and and be around actors. But having who been rehearsing a play, having been sitting in an editing room all day, how do you keep your energy level at eight o'clock at night when the curtain goes up? Um, <clears throat> that was the trick. Uh, it was an awful lot of coffee uh, <laughs> and. Um, and uh and um uh, a little bit of red wine and, and a lot of prayer uh it was it was inten- it was intense it was a really intense time but i i think i don't think i could have done it with any other play mammoth's play it's like high octane caffeine it just it's fuel the language is fuel and it and it, and and the the kind of that the language in that play and the ensemble of that play create a kind of um uh, a buoyancy, a net that if you if you throw just enough coal into the fire, it keeps roaring along and and every actor gets to chuck a piece of coal in every once in a while and if you do it at just the right time with just the right intensity, the thing really really cooks, and you don't actually need that much energy having directed yourself now, do you as an actor respond differently? to directors do you have a different appreciation of what they do <laughs> oh you're laughing let's hear yeah, it. No. well I, I mean i think i probably learned I, I i've learned more about acting directing that film than i probably have in 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 maybe you know 10 or 15 years um you i ju- i guess what i learned was that is you need to do so much less but at the same time um uh you come to the process informed. You come to the process owning it, owning all of the information. And then when you get there, you sort of forget it and you relax. You, and there's no pressure. Rely on the director. Let them let them be responsible. Be informed. Do your homework. And then show up and relax. I think that's, that's e- uh, I think, to a degree easier on films. I mean, you can always get more specific and you can always be better informed about what you're doing but um the analysis and the, and the sort of research in the, this classical text is 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 really there's a lot more to it well, what do you mean by, by research in classical text um you know the, andre serban used to say you know you're lucky if the audience understands one-third of what you're saying <clears throat> to get one-third you have to understand 100 percent so um and you have to really, really investigate how to do that clearly and articulately. And I think you also, when the director defines the world of the play for you, you have to research that. You have to find out what it is. You have to know what it is to move in that world, what it is to dress in that world, what it is to eat, sleep, drink, think, and everything else that you would do in that world. And 
the more specific that you get about that stuff, the more natural that you get with that stuff, um, that you're just carrying it around with you intuitively, the better. Well, coming back to Macbeth, after and currently, it's it's not dress in Shakespeare's ear. It's more modern dress. Mm. Um, what kind of background or research did you do on that? You already knew the show, obviously, but did you do anything special to prepare for this particular staging of it? I, I, I spent some time watching... Um, oh, God... The Kubrick movie about the Great War, um, Paths, Paths of, of Glory. Glory. Um, I spent some time watching Paths of Glory, and um, there was a bunch of photos and uh, that they had. And um, uh, I actually uh, watched it. I, I, this was not um, from Moises, but I was really, really motivated by a, by a wonderful documentary I saw um, about uh, Slobodan Milosevic and his wife. And <laughs> that really caught my attention, and then and then and then it was for me. It was a matter of t- sort of taking that story and and scooting it into the the period of the Great War. But it wasn't that you did research on Shakespeare or, or what he was thinking. Well, no, absolutely. It. You know, you, you got you the lexicon, you've got pronunciation dictionaries, okay. and you have the folio. You know, once you start to once you after you've you know started to explore the text, you you have options because there is no. Um, real pure text for Shakespeare. Everyone says that the truest form is the folio, and and no one is entirely sure how that was compiled. Um, but there are stage directions in that, and there are lines in that that are punctuated or or, or um, written differently than in uh, edited edited editions, where direct, where the editors have made decisions about based on productions they've seen or research that they've done about what Shakespeare was actually writing. And I think it's good to be it's good to read as much of that as you can so that you're really making your really making a pure decision and it's not it's not being uh, um influenced too much by any particular editor. John mentioned that certainly the Macbeth is not in period you're not walking around wearing kilts your your bagpipes are not <clears throat> playing. I've always wondered whether, since the language of Shakespeare is so specific and that style and that rhythm, when you're working in a production that has that is set in a different era, certainly in an era when they would not have been speaking that way, does that create kind of a, a tug of war for a performer or is it the language is the language and what surrounds it is what surrounds it? It can create a tug of war, I suppose, but then you 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 probably haven't done a great job with it. <laughs> I mean, if it creates a tug of war, it's um, something's not fitting, and and I th- either dramaturgically or 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 from the actors. Um, but that's what you got to sort of watch out for. And and do those concepts then free an actor to perform the lines differently, to deliver them in a different way, or is it still? Yeah, the I mean, meter that you're given. Um, I think there's a way to respect the meter without um, uh, without feeling confined by it or bound to it. I think the meter is is uh, you know the meter is like the microphones in the Delacorte. It's there to help you, um, but it is not the the core of of what's functioning. It's not it's not the heart of it. Um, uh, and I, I've seen some really great productions where people have sort of, you know, put it in really strange and wacky dialects. And I mean, look at Kurosawa's films and and the, the many many uh, theater companies all over the world that do this, uh, not in English. So 
it certainly uh, it certainly holds up. Well, a year ago, you said you wanted to do Macbeth. Mm-hmm. So this is another June, a year later. What do you want to be doing next June? <clears throat> is? You know, more and more in these interviews, I'm ending up with this 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 question, and more and more the response is sleep. <laughs> for, for a very long time. How about professionally? Any any more thoughts? I, I'm I'm I you know I would love to to continue writing. I'd love to continue uh-huh. directing. Um, I honestly I have um, knock on wood. I've had I've had such um, a great opportunity. I've had so many great opportunities, both to shuttle back and forth between films and to get to work at the public theater, to get to work at the Delacorte Theater. Um, has it's I mean it's uh, I, I couldn't have imagined a better uh, career. I couldn't have imagined more opportunities. It really has been wonderful. So I'm fine with with just how it's going. I think that's a good note to wrap on. So Liev Schreiber, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Liev. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online on demand for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that's a wrap, and thank you.